Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Ian Bremmer here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios, the president of Eurasia Group. Take us to the UN Security Council meeting yesterday. Nikki Haley wanted to impose some sanctions on oil and North Korea. That didn't happen. Did she get most of what she wanted yesterday? What's the significance of the new sanctions the UN Security Council has implemented? I mean, I wouldn't say she got most of Uh what she wanted, but she got more than any other American administration had. They're cutting off North Korean textile uh, exports, which is significant cash. Uh, they are limiting uh, the amount of oil they can import, which is critical. They're not allowing them to substitute other fuels, and they're not allowing uh, for the uh, new signing of contracts for North Korean expats to be working and making money bringing back to North Korea. If you add all that up, we're talking over a billion dollar hit, which is big for their economy if it gets executed on. And it's also by far a more constructive way to proceed in dealing with the North Koreans, unanimous, multilateral, driven by the United States. That's not a, you know, what what we've seen from Trump America first on most issues around the world. So I think anyone sensible should applaud this decision and applaud Nikki Haley's role in it. But does it get you closer to actual peace with North Korea? Uh, I think it'd be, you'd have to be uh, un. un- godly optimistic to believe that and the next time they test a, a missile or they or they uh, launch a hit, test another nuke um I, I you know i, I or or hit others with cyber which has been hitting the u.s and hitting the chinese um we, we are running out of road it's true it's it's getting harder and harder um to uh, to see uh, how you do all of this with stick mm-hmm. and not offer any carrot and the one thing that the trump administration just hasn't done yet is in any way tell the North Koreans what they would get if they cooperate. And uh, right now, the North Koreans are seeing very little reason to do so. How is she doing? How is Nikki Haley doing? Where does she fit into this this pantheon of, of foreign policy professionals within the, the administration after the, the nuclear attack and uh, nuclear test, rather, and after the, the recent missile test? We were hearing more from her than I think we were hearing from, from Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. How does she fit into the whole apparatus? She likes the media. Uh-huh. Uh, she's used to it as a politician. Rex Tillerson finds the media kind of, uh, you know, un, unhelpful. He never wanted to engage with them when he was running ExxonMobil, particularly, um, and uh, and and they're kind of below him. Uh, Nikki Haley has you know worked politics for her entire career. She's much more effective in that regard. Doesn't mean that she'd be a better Secretary of State, um, but she clearly is more interested in the job uh, than I think Tillerson is at this point. She also has said a bunch of things that imply that she works for a different administration. I mean, her comments on Russia and Ukraine Mm -hmm. were of a type that they could have been under Obama or under Hillary Clinton. Um, Having said that, that's also true of things we've heard from people like Mattis. So it's not, I I don't, she's she's certainly not on the chopping block. She's been reasonably effective in the position so far, but she also says a bunch of things that aren't necessarily policy. I mean, I don't want to interrupt this conversation. It's too smart. But, David, I would note the foreign policy article of about five days ago, which did the point that Dr. Bremer just mentioned, uh, which is Mr. Tillerson appears to have no interest whatsoever in any of the Washington games, plural. He just has, you know, genuinely no interest. 
Don't let me interrupt. You two can. No, and, and and you can understand and respect that. Very few people would uh, would have an interest um, in those games. And Tillerson, of course, when he was asked to be the Secretary of State, and remember, mm-hmm. it was the third round of who might be that position. This was after the you know sort of the courting of yeah. uh, uh, you know whether it was Petraeus or Jim Stavridis or Rudy Giuliani, course, yeah. all this stuff. The dinners, and yeah. he talked to his wife and says off his job. He didn't want to take it. How do you respond to the Navy having? two substantial accidents with horrific deaths and the idea of the Pentagon budget within the International Relations Study of Eurasia Group, where does military might and spending and smart spending fit in in the United States of America? I, I, in some ways, I'm more worried about this than most issues because Why? over uh, well because when we talk about the military it's you know sort of uh, the, the the you know massive multi-year defense reviews it's budgets that actually touch every single congressional district in the United States so you can't really screw with them very much it's jobs that matter I mean even closing bases that didn't that had no impact whatsoever on American strategic capacity and we're wasting money but you just it's so hard to do because of the impact on local economies and and yet now you're seeing not just things like terrorism and cyber, but drone technology that can be developed much more cheaply by you know other states around the world that'll make things like the American infantry completely obsolete. And yet the Americans will still be spending for reasons that have nothing to do with national security on a lot of these programs. So I do worry that 10, 20 years out, America's ability to project force effectively around the world is going to look radically different than it does today. How much of that is a casualty of the, the way that budgeting and appropriations are now done uh, in Washington? We had this uh, debt ceiling deal uh, last week. I gather the Senate Armed Services Committee is going to go through its usual late-night process of uh, adding amendments to the appropriations bill, perhaps a little bit later this week. But we don't have regular order. We don't have uh, the kind of conversations we had about funding for security programs, other programs that we had in years past. Is that problematic? The most problematic thing about the American outlook right now is the fact that top-down governance doesn't really work. It's, it's very inflexible. It's very slow. It's resistant to change. That makes it stable. But in a world where that becomes a disadvantage, where the Chinese are able to spend much more, much more quickly, use all of the functions of the state to make that happen. I mean, the Chinese economy is considerably smaller than the United States, but I would argue that Chinese economic power, because of the structure of the state, actually gives them more political influence than the United States economic power does around the world as of today with a lot of other countries. That's a shocking thing to say. And it's not because America isn't a much better economy. It is. It's because the ability of the American government to deploy that as a lever is massively constrained. Now, the upside is that a lot of decisions around the American economy aren't made in Washington. Mm -hmm. They're made by corporations, they're made by entrepreneurs, and they're made at the federal level by states and municipalities. So there is a lot of flexibility still in the United States holistically, but when you think about all the things that are done by Washington, they are not just broken, but they will be increasingly broken in ways that hurt us. Is this administration okay with what you describe? We've we've mourned the death of, of Pax Americana uh, with the kind of economic influence that you were just describing on the wane. Do you have people in the White House in Washington who are content with that, 
who don't think that we need to wield that kind of influence any longer? Well, uh, I would say a lot of the people that did feel that way are gone. Uh-huh. Uh, certainly, uh, you look at Steve Bannon, um, you look at many of those around him that have been ousted in the White House and the senior director positions. These were people that really mm. believed that um, the United States needed to go it alone, unilaterally, that these problems were not our problem, stop the interventions in places like Iraq mm-hmm. uh, and, and Pakistan is not our issue, don't play as much with the Saudis, not going to work long time, Afghanistan, please, it's the never-ending war, why are we doing this? And that's a reason mm-hmm. why a lot of enlisted men and women and their families voted for Trump and voted for Sanders, mm-hmm. for that matter. But if you look at the people that are making the decisions on national security right now, one level under the Trump and Javanka complex, and you see people that whose whose views of national security are really functionally identical to what they would be under um, Hillary or under Jeb or under Bush or really maybe even under Obama. And I think that in that regard, when Steve Bannon was saying, you know, Team Clinton, Team Obama, Team Bush, these are all the same people, that's clearly not true domestically if you look at things like immigration. Well, but internationally... <clears throat> There's a lot to be said for that, okay. and no one's saying it. Okay, Ian Bremer with us uh, to get us started here. Wonderful to have him in. Of course, if somebody emailed in, when's the next book? The next book, I'm told, is April. He's negotiating movie rights right now for us versus them. Anyways, we'll come back. Stay with us. Too many themes to speak to Ian Bremer about. He is with Eurasia Group, his new book, Us Versus Them. Uh, look for that uh, in April. That's the attitude, Dr. Bremer, of so much of America. It's us versus uh, them uh, to too many Americans who are not participating uh, in our greater wealth and our greater income. It's tough out there. How tough is it? Is it, is it, is it, a, is it a, an illusion or is it genuinely tough for Americans? Um, well, in the context of the world as a whole, of course, uh, it's an illusion uh, in the sense that uh, Americans are extraordinarily privileged to live in this country. Um, are, you know, the, the, the wealth even of a relatively yeah. impoverished American doesn't mean that they're starving. And it's not like you're going to immolate yourselves as you did like at the but, beginning of the Arab Spring in Tunisia. But compared to the American dream. That was that promised. Robert Gordon talked about in his wonderful book last year, and that you know your and my forebears believed in. I think a majority of Americans no longer believe the American dream yeah. applies to them, and uh, that is an extraordinary sadness, and it's one that I mean, if if we were to go around and ask Americans today, what does America stand for, right? I mean, are we the beacon shining on a hill? Um, do we believe in rule of law and, and democracy and human rights? And do we truly believe in free speech and, uh, you know, sort of an opera? Do we believe in capitalism? You have to have capital to believe in capitalism. You know, when I see Nancy Pelosi and the, the extraordinary wealth that she has talking about the fact that all Americans are capitalists, that doesn't resonate with the average person. And I think that the establishment, Democrat and Republican, has lost the plot for these people for, for quite some time. And, and that's, I think, why the country doesn't feel good. I mean, our, our markets continue to be at record yeah, highs, but, and Donald Trump well, writes about that we have okay, new records. But then a question, David Gurr, to you within your political show at one p.m. to the politicians you talk to, are they listening to Ian Bremmer? Uh, 
I don't know. I think they're struggling with who to listen to. And I'd be interesting to hear sort of what they have to say after this long break that they've had uh, back home to see what's important to them and what they hope to, to accomplish here. And, and Ian, I want to ask you about the, the speech the president delivered now about a month ago, uh, just south of D.C. or just west of D.C. rather, at a military base. He talked about Afghanistan strategy and South Asia uh, strategy. We keep having these moments that look like turning points where he gets serious about foreign policy. And then uh, I remember Tom and I following the, the speech he gave the next day, wondering if there was going to be follow on from, from what he had to say. And, and there wasn't. Uh, is the lack of continuity a problem when it comes to how this administration charts its course? There's been continuity. Come on. Um, <laughs> I mean, Trump, when Trump reads a speech that someone else has written, um, there's, there, it looks like that there's a very consistent administration over the course of the past few months. Now, th- those you probably shouldn't listen to those speeches because they're they're not meant to be heard as Trump delivers them. They're meant to be read and poured over and and scanned, and then you can figure out okay, what are the people that actually work in the Trump administration? What are they trying to do? And then there are campaign speeches, and the campaign speeches are um, they're the same thing. They don't have any resonance with policy. The things that he talks about that he tries to get done around them, like the wall, for example, they don't happen. They can't happen. Um, and and to the extent that there's been a change, the only major change there's been has been around staffing. Mm-hmm. And and relatedly, in the last two weeks, uh, Trump has started tweeted like, tweeting like a normal human being. Um, not, not like an incredibly intelligent human being, but like a normal human being. And that's, I mean, maybe the bar is low, but that's a massive improvement. I mean, seriously, he's not made uh, the mainstream media has had a hard time coming up with moments to make their hair fall out uh, over the past past couple of weeks, and th- that's probably bad for CNN. But it's it's really good for the country, right? And if so, he doesn't need to stop tweeting. He just needs to like be more constrained. He needs to have tweets the way when he reads speeches, and that's boring, but it kind of works. Uh, very quickly here, we've seen his response. To these. I, I think what you're saying in the context of these storms, uh, he seems to have been very engaged with both of those. He's going to go to Florida this week, uh, struggle to find something good out of the, the disasters that we've seen there. But it does seem like it's focused his attention on those two places in particular. He needs to be like the queen, uh-huh. right? People have talked about this. It's it's a symbolic position. Everyone needs to kiss the ring. They need to behave in this extraordinary fashion of showing him respect and love and adulation. He needs to be contained and cosseted and put in a palace. But, but he should not be making policy because he doesn't have the background, the coherence, um, the, the self-discipline, uh, the willingness to well, atta- accept expertise to do those things. But there are adults yeah. around him that are capable of doing those things. And there are far more of them today in important positions than there were a couple months ago, right? And the right. fact that, you know, whether it's Mooch or Priebus <clears throat> or Bannon, that those people, Seb Gorka, who didn't belong in a foreign yeah. advisory position in Hungary, yeah, I know. never okay. mind in the United States, those we, people we, are gone. We got to go. Seb Gorka's resume is into Eurasia oh, Group. God. Ian Bremmer, <laughs> thank you so much. This is Bloomberg. One of the original sponsors of all we do here at Bloomberg on the Economy and Bloomberg Surveillance was the New York University Stern School of Business. They were strong then, they're stronger now because of Peter Henry, who will retire in December uh, as dean of NYU Stern and joins us now. Mr. Henry uh, uh, attained mathematics at Oxford and, I believe, put a basketball through the hoop 
in Oxford. I don't want to ask what <laughs> Oxford. They didn't make the final four, did they? Or no, being on the basketball team at Oxford is a little bit like being on the surfing team at University yeah. <laughs> You are. But I'll take it. In your wonderful book, uh, you are. You open it with your grandmother on a porch in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. With all that we've seen the last couple of weeks, did you enjoy a Caribbean hurricane? It's different on an island, isn't it? It's very different on an island. You know, one of the things about being on an island is you realize how much you depend on people in the outside world. And, you and know, right now it's serious. It's very serious. Yeah. It's very serious. You know, I, I spent, um, you know, not only time in Jamaica growing up, but I spent a summer in St. Kitts in the Eastern Caribbean, the really small islands, places that are of the size of places like Barbuda that have really been devastated by this hurricane. So my thoughts and prayers are with, with all those, those folks right Who now. Who comes to the rescue? Is there an institution where that just saves the day, or is there going to have to be some real arm twisting here? Well, the U.S. has traditionally been a, a great partner for the Caribbean, as the Caribbean really is a kind of a third board of the United States. And uh, my understanding is that um, that we've we've sent some help to the region, and certainly um, the international institutions like the World Bank will, I'm sure, be coming to the aid in terms of putting together funds for the region. But uh, a lot of rebuilding ahead, tough times. It just reminds us all just how important it is to think about uh, climate issues and, and, um, and, and the, the vulnerability of small states. How worried are you about institutions like the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund? You hear the rhetoric um, out of this White House, out of this administration about large multilateral institutions like those. You see the, the rise of some competitors, I think you can call them, uh, in China in particular. Uh, are, you, are you concerned that their influence might be, it might be waning? You know, it's a tough time. Uh, it's a tough time for multilateralism generally, uh, but it's, a, it's the reason why we need to push really hard. I mean, more than ever, if you think about the issues facing the world, so just start, start with the U.S. We are talking about how do we get back to 3% growth. And if you look at uh, the emerging markets who in the late 1990s went through this incredible period of growth acceleration, went from 3.5% growth to 5.5% mm-hmm. growth, they did it largely by taking the advice of, you know, very ironically, the multilateral institutions like the IMF and the World Bank. And so we need both the policy advice of those institutions to, to, to take the policy advice to heart in advanced nations, but also we've got to realize something really important, David, which is that growth is not a zero-sum game. We've fallen into this mindset that if, you know, China grows at 10% or India grows at 8%, that means less growth for us. And that's absolutely the opposite of what's true to be the case. If the U.S. is going to hit 3% growth. If Europe's going to get back to 2% plus growth, we need emerging economies to start growing at 6 and 7% again instead of the 4% we've seen the last couple of years. And so we've got to get out of this mindset. And multilateralism and these multilateral institutions are the embodiment of the fact that growth is, in fact, a positive sum game. So whether it's infrastructure uh, in the developing world, you know, you, you made an allusion to the kind of the Asian infrastructure mm-hmm, investment mm-hmm. bank. We need these institutions, and, we, and the U.S. needs to be part of the conversation about how we drive growth, not just for emerging markets, but that's growth for us as well. Yeah, we were talking with uh, Peter Henry, the dean of the Stern School of Business uh, at NYU. We were talking a bit about the IMF and the World Bank uh, having a focus here on D.C. And I know that the Stern School now has a new focus on uh, D.C. as well. You're starting a new program there, I believe, and uh, making that announcement uh, today. Who's making the case for multilateralism or globalization? Now, you've seen it take knocks here over the course of the last election cycle. Certainly, we've heard the rhetoric about trade policy, uh, a move toward more bilateral deals. Uh, who's going to make the case for it? Who's making the case for, for globalization today? 
Well, I know one business school that's speaking very loudly ah, about you it. Uh, you mentioned our program and executive program in DC. We're very excited about that. Um, you know, thinking globally and acting locally uh, in launching that program. But seriously, um, our faculty and I, I know a number of other economists who, who feel very, very strongly about this. It's frankly one of the reasons why I'm going back to to research and teaching. I think that um, you know, not, not to sound immodest, but uh, there is a need for you know, our, our, our profession as a whole, the economics profession, has not done a very good job of communicating um, the benefits of globalization and, frankly, how we deal with um, the transition costs of globalization. So we have to make the case and help people understand that whether you're in Akron, Ohio, or Karagana, if you want more shared prosperity, uh, the only way to achieve that uh, is by embracing trade. Think about the United States economy. Uh, we're, you, the U.S. is basically 5% of the world's population and almost a quarter of the world's GDP. That doesn't happen without global trade. But the issue is, as you look at across the country, Tom and I were talking about this earlier on, on, on television, uh, the rise in, op- the, in opioid addiction across the country. Mm-hmm. You see a direct correlation in the rise in opioid addiction and the decline in manufacturing in certain parts of the country. And the answer is uh, not to close our borders because we benefit from cheaper goods. That helps everybody. Uh, but the answer is, how do you, is to, is to retrain workers. And, you know, one of the things I'd like us to see is have uh, in a national conversation to, uh, is to think about the $2.5 trillion that are sitting offshore with companies. Uh, let's talk about, you know, a tax holiday, bringing that back home, but let's say take 5% off the top to create a $250 billion endowment to have uh, a fund uh, to, to drive uh, skills development. Train for, instance. for what? Well, train for 21st century jobs. That's the key point, Tom. We don't know exactly what jobs. We don't know what those jobs are. That's the key thing. We, we don't know what the jobs are, but we know the skills that are required. That's the key point. Okay. We need people who can think analytically. We need folks who can communicate. Uh, and we need people who can work in teams. And, and, and it's going to sound funny, but we, we need people with empathy, meaning the following thing. People who understand how to put themselves in the shoes of clients and customers. These are the key skills yeah. for the 21st century. Albert Shanker, I've quoted this for years, folks. If I'm boring you, you know, drive off the road or turn your switch off. <laughs> Albert Shanker, Teachers Union, Rolling Stone magazine, or excuse me, it was in the New York Times, his column that he did years ago. Should waitresses learn calculus? Okay, I get what you just said on critical thinking skills. What about the rest of America that doesn't want to learn Newtonian mechanics? Not everybody, not everybody is going to become a physicist. Thank God for that. Okay? <clears throat> but if you want to be employable, let's, let's, look, let's look at it. Amazon is looking to open a new headquarters. Right? If you want to be competitive for a job at Amazon, you've got to be able to do more than carry boxes. Right, you got to be able to think strategically. You got to be able to think uh, logically. You got to be you got to be employable. And being employable in the twenty first century means being extremely numerate, not Newtonian physics, but very numerate and very literate. You, you and, and, and and we've just got we've got to push that message, right? It, it, it's very easy to talk about the jobs of yesteryear. Mm-hmm. It's much harder to tell people, no, you're not qualified to work right now. This is what you have to do to get there. And that's what our leaders need to, need, need to, be, need to be talking about. You, uh, you advised the previous president. You had a job uh, in the White House uh, doing that. Uh, outside the White House. Outside the White House. <laughs> because you were advising the, the president. What, what's your sense of when you, when you look at students at the Stern School of the enthusiasm for public service or for going into government right now? I still think there's a layer of confusion uh, over Washington right now about who's doing what, if certain jobs are going to get filled. 
Has the appetite for public service for working in government changed here over the last year, 18 months, two years? I think there's still a lot of there, there's a lot of cynicism, no question. But one of the great privileges I had in uh, being an outside advisor to the president was serving uh, as a commissioner in the White House Fellows Program. And the White House Fellows Program is a, a great best program, of the best, which yeah, which really attracts the best of the best, uh, late twenties, early thirty something year olds who want to serve at the highest level of government. And my view from that program tells me that there's still lots of young Americans who are very enthusiastic about public service. And what we've got to do is just to make sure that we continue to create, we, we, you know, change the conversation so that those who have enthusiasm and a desire to actually serve their countries um, find it easier to do, do that um, and, make, and find the climate a little, bit, uh, a little bit more rewarding. Because right now, I think that students see uh, our leaders not really talking about the issues that are so mm-hmm. fundamental to 21st century prosperity. What did you do when you got the Taylor series, that third semester of engineering calculus? <laughs> do you remember Taylor functions? I do remember, I do remember this Taylor This is not calculus. John Taylor, you economist. Yes. These are Taylor series. You know, I, I basically had a, a Jenny Cremail in my hand when I tried to figure these. <laughs> what did you do with Taylor series? Did you master them? Taylor series are kind of fun, actually. Oh, oh. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, <laughs> We say that with great esteem, and we just, Peter Henry, truly one of our academics, I should point out, a Rhodes Scholar, a few years. He got that for basketball, David. <laughs> Peter Henry, thank you so much. If we, uh, I, I would like to think we will speak to you before December. Would love to come back. And please tell us when you announce what you're going to be doing, just so we can have our break exclusive as we have it on <laughs> Bloomberg Surveillance. Dean Henry, thank you so much. Thank we you, we say thank you. Tanya Chen, oh, yeah, one of our, our, our team members, Tanya Chen slipped through. I think it was um, uh, uh, Brad Hintz. Who, <laughs> she, Brad Hintz came out with a D-plus for Tanya Chen, and Henry <laughs> called up and said, you can't do that to her. Anyways, congratulations to uh, NYU Stern and Elian Friend and Tanya Chen and all the others of our team that have gotten really a lot wiser, truly within the rigor of what we see in the mathematics at NYU at Stern. I was walking down Central Park South the other day, Rick Sherlin walked by, who for years owned the coverage of Microsoft. Much could be said about Walter Pysak of BTIG and the coverage of Apple. You say, how does Walter Pysak do it? The way he does it, folks, is with detailed notes, hyper-detailed notes loaded with gorgeous charts of the emotions and dynamics of Apple. Again, we protect the copyright of our guests. We will not send out the BTIG research. Walter, good morning. Um, I I want to get to the heart of the matter. I totally disagree with the media hysteria about $1,000 a phone. What portion of these new toys will be bought on a monthly plan where parents will go, yeah, okay, sure, we can do that? I mean, in the U.S., it's probably going to be 80% of them. And overseas, the payment plans, you know, it'll be Apple's offering them. But, you know, again, you're right. A thousand dollars, everyone makes such a big deal about it. But if it's ten dollars or twenty dollars a month with some additional promotions and trade in values, it's it's um, 
It's that, nothing. It's not a big deal. Okay. The other thing I get uh, nuts on folks is the, you know, the hysteria, not hysteria, but the managed hype of all these events. And to me, Walter, it's always been about the underlying engineering. Do you have any knowledge of the A11 chip that's inside these toys? And is it going to be a jump condition as the last big upgrade was? I don't certainly have any information about what is going to be launched later today, but certainly a lot of anticipation and interest in what they're doing. And the operators care a lot about this kind of stuff. If if certain things are enabled, then they can offer you, the end user, faster speeds and and more capacity. A lot of it's complaint about how our our phones work on the streets, and there's things that Apple can do um, that help the operators offer you more Like Wi-Fi leakage and all that stuff. Using Wi-Fi frequencies, and the Sprint's very hopeful for a technology called HPUE. So if you're a Sprint user out there, you'd love to have that technology in there. Certain spectrum, there's something called Band 66, if we really want to get technical, that all yeah. these operators spent te- you know billions of dollars for, that they're hopeful that this spectrum is going to be yeah. on the phone. Why? Because we're all staring at the phone, but we, you want it to work. And if yeah. everyone's using it more, they need this stuff in this latest version of the phone. So everyone still has a very positive experience. I I can't emphasize, folks, this is the adult conversation that pros have on these toys, David Gura, rather than, oh, my God, it's got a stainless steel edge. You know, (laughs) I mean, it's just one example. Well, what can you tell when you you look at one of these things, when you learn about the architecture Tom was just discussing a moment ago, about where this company's headed service-wise? In other words, they're going to announce some new stuff today, but but what can you forecast out based on the, the architecture that's in there? Well, based on the architecture, some of this um, additional functionality, when you talk about like facial recognition and, and uh, artificial intelligence, um, you know, things like that actually require additional componentry. So I think people get excited when they see some of that stuff in there because it portends Apple's intent to do more on the services side, which is growing faster than the phone business and carries a much higher margin. So if you have a bunch of people using the messaging service as an example, and you can put some type of services through there that are generate incremental revenue to the company. That's, that's what people are going to care about. It's certainly something that some people at least are using to try and find new ways to continue to recommend stock, Apple stock to go higher. You, you look at all the, the reporting surrounding this from, from Bloomberg and other outlets. I look at the New York Times' piece on this today, and such a huge focus is on Brazil, where Apple has had a tough time making uh, inroads. What's it going to take for Apple to get more Apple smartphones in the hands of, of Brazilians or people in other emerging markets? Well, in the emerging markets, I think what's been happening is legacy products, uh, older models, have been discounted and then sent into those, in those markets. But look, even in those markets where LTE is a technology which enables you to use data, um, it has gotten Internet usage on your phone um, to be more important. So if you look at the data usage in Brazil or in Mexico – it's up significant. So, so people in these markets are are finding the importance of these products and, and willing to spend more. But there's only so such you know so much money that a lot of the people, a lot of the population in these markets can afford. So it's really going to be reliant on them providing yeah. some of the legacy products at a discounted price. What will the financials look like? I mean, as a revenue guess, and people will be right, people will be wrong. What will it do to margins? Do you have a lot of variability in your margin guesses out a year? Um, it's getting easier. I mean, that was a concern four or five years ago. I mean, look, if we went back to the days of Nokia and Motorola, people would be excited if they could get a 10% operating margin. These guys are, you know, more than twice that. So the margin concerns have faded because the theory, the, 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 
the retention rate yeah. of an Apple user buying another Apple phone every two or three years is higher than any consumer electronic product out there. So they have such pricing power in the market for their existing base continuing to upgrade their phones, and that enables them to maintain margins. When they add the services business on top of that, which is growing at a faster rate at the mobile phone business, that only helps margins further because that's a higher margin business for them. How do you define improvement in the Apple world? I just picked up a, a new phone a couple weeks back. The The home button works just fine. This was for the four-year-old, for me, right? For the four-year-old, exactly. But, you know, so, so this new phone, say it doesn't have a, a home button. Why, why is that an improvement, per se? Well, the improvement might be because your three-year-old phone is this cracked screen. So uh-huh. it's an improvement of your legacy product that you've had for, um, for years. So your point, though, is accurate in that there's marginal changes relative to the big changes that we saw in, you know, back in the times when the iPhone 4 was launched, and 5, and, of course, the big one with the 6 and the 6S. You know, there are going to be some, you know, again, the facial recognition stuff that people have talked about, um, greater integration with, with perhaps health and, and okay. adding greater functionality to the, into the watch itself. So there should okay. be other stuff. I descend into the stupidity of all this. Why do I care about facial recognition? I don't think you you necessarily care about that service in itself because, you know, it's basically logging on the phone faster. Is this like a Snapchat thing? It's the first wave of a functionality in the phone that that the camera is going to be able to do things, not only with your face, but recognizing in the environment around you that it hasn't up to this point been able to do. I just want to like a monochrome M. You know, can they put a $10,000 camera uh, uh, can they put a ten thousand dollar camera uh, into um, into an iPhone? Give me a buy hold sell, Walter. Before we let you go on to your festivities today, where are you buy hold sell on Apple? It, it, we're buy with a hundred eighty four dollar target, which is still a discount to the to the market multiple. The free cash flow yield on this thing at that price mm-hmm. is still seven uh, percent. The swing factor in going into twenty eighteen is going to be can that ASP I think continue to rise. Yeah. Walter, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it uh, as well uh, this morning. Walter uh, Pysik with BTIG uh, on Apple. And again, I'm going to say this, folks, with great spirit. One of the things we do when you look at securities uh, research is we protect the copyright of our guests. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.